0: chapter 4, uh, speaking to the mission of the Messiah and what he has come to do. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, where we're we are picking back up after uh, some weeks away from Luke for Easter. We're back in Luke chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verse 14 to verse 30 this morning, let me read the text for us, follow along as I do. Starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went, through, went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away." This is the word of the living God. Now why would Luke begin the public ministry of Jesus here? Why start here? After all, uh, Luke has skipped nearly at least a year if not a year and a half of Jesus' ministry from the time of his temptation concluding and his time preaching in nazareth think of uh, some movies you've seen and uh montage scenes where you know maybe like rocky balboa and he's training and it's just music there's no talking it's just him training and doing all these things and it's giving an overview of that season where he's training uh, Luke does somewhat of that for us in verses 14 and 15, where he gives us sort of a montage of what is happening in the life of Jesus and his ministry in Galilee, an overview. But before that, he's been ministering in Jerusalem and Judea and that area already for some time, and so you can imagine that scene if it were a movie. Maybe you would have Jesus, and there's no talking; there's just maybe music being over overlaid, and Jesus is in different synagogues, and he's walking to a different synagogue, and now he's in a different one, and he's. Speaking there and he's speaking there, and it's just he keeps on speaking in these different synagogues, and he's just bouncing around, he's, he's healing people. And then you see people in homes, and they're kind of whispering, they're talking, and they're, you can clearly tell that they're talking about Jesus, and they're, they're amazed at what he's doing. And so his popularity is spreading. And so Luke gives us a very short summary of what is happening in Jesus' Galilean ministry. And then He has the the scene cut and it goes black after that montage and it appears in a new scene and it's Nazareth and Jesus is walking into his hometown, its homecoming, and Jesus, the hometown hero, walks in and maybe it comes up on the bottom of the screen one year later after the temptation. And so there's quite a bit of white space in between Luke chapter 4 verse 13 and Luke chapter 4 verse 14 where a lot of things take place. So why does Luke begin here? Why start here? Why, why skip so much of that? Well, remember, Luke is writing to a, an individual, a Roman leader, we believe, Theophilus, and he is trying to give an orderly account of the life of Jesus for the purpose that Theophilus would have assurance in what he has believed about Jesus. And so, how does he begin the public ministry of Jesus? By having Jesus tell us who he is and what his mission is. And so it's the perfect text for showing Jesus saying, here's who I am, here's why I've come. But it also highlights the large-scale response that people had to Jesus and the surprising response of unbelief. So while Theophilus is believing and Luke wants him to continue to believe and have assurance, he shows him that even when Jesus preaches, there are times when people reject. And so he begins here in the hometown of Nazareth, the homecoming, homecoming. We are in a new section of Luke as it breaks down. The first uh, four chapters, really four, uh, middle of chapter four in verse 13 is the end of the first section where Jesus is the preparation for Jesus to come. And then you have the actual public ministry of Jesus starting in verse 14 taking us all the way to the end of chapter 22, and then finally we see the passion of Jesus in chapters 22 to 24. So we're going to be in this main section for some time, uh, but we're beginning it this morning. Praise God. Uh, What I want us to do is look at this section, the verses we just read, and really it breaks down into four segments. And I just have one word for each of them to just summarize them for us. First we have the recap in verses 14 and 15, uh, the recap of his ministry, in Galilee, then the reading in verses 16 to 21, then the reproof in verses 22 to 27, and finally the rejection in verses 28 to 30. That just gives you kind of a conceptual outline of where we're going in the text. So first, let's look at the recap, verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all." Now, if you want to see the, the, the part that Luke skips, and he doesn't cover, you could look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 29, all the way to the end of chapter 4 of John. So like half of John 1, John 2, John 3, John 4, what, what is happening during this time? Well, after Jesus is baptized, Jesus comes again to John the Baptist, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And actually, John records for us the, the, the first week of Jesus' public ministry. So we have the, the last week of Jesus' public ministry called Passion Week. Uh, L- John is the only one who actually gives us each day in sequence of the first week of Jesus' ministry. And so things like calling of the, some of the disciples, the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee, where Jesus does his first sign there, manifesting his glory, his Capernaum ministry, he celebrates one of the passovers in jerusalem during this time he drives the money changers out uh, he performs many miracles the nick at night encounter right nicodemus comes to him at night and asks him he says you must be born again uh, then uh, the gd ministry where it says that jesus is baptizing not jesus himself but his disciples are baptizing more than john the baptist he's becoming more and more popular and then, as he heads north to Galilee, so Galilee's in the north, he starts heading north, and he passes through a place that Jews did not want to pass through because they hated them, and it was the Samaritans, right? And he meets a Samaritan woman in John chapter four, and he ministers to her, and then he ministers to the town there, and he's on his way up to Galilee. But now, uh, that's what John includes, but then Luke summarizes, not that part, but he summarizes the Galilean ministry up north, He gives us a recap, a previously on, if you will, what Jesus has been doing prior to this homecoming. And this gives us somewhat of a summary. And what what, what was it that Luke wants us to know characterized this ministry of Jesus in Galilee? Well, first notice the power of Jesus' ministry. He says, you return in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Jesus is highlighted as doing his work in the power of the Spirit. He was baptized and the Spirit came upon him. He went into the, his temptation being led by the Spirit. We're gonna see throughout Luke, his highlighting Jesus doing his work in the power of the Spirit. But this also likely speaks to the miracles that Jesus was doing. The signs, wonders, and miracles. And those three terms actually are just really three ways of speaking to one action and the response that, that, that it has, different ways of describing the same event. Jesus is doing these incredible works to show who he is, to give evidence that he is the Messiah. It should highlight for us, though, that we would all want to be doing ministry in the power of the Spirit of God and not in the flesh, no matter what we do as we maybe lead a Bible study, or we, we uh, evangelize, or we encourage others, or whatever we might do for the Lord, our just daily work, that we would want to do it in the power of the Spirit, dependent on the Spirit, can, having sins confessed, walking in the will that we know, it, the, the will of God revealed to us in Scripture. And so Jesus is, we see the power of Jesus' ministry, we see the priority of Jesus' ministry. It says that he taught in their synagogues. The main focus of Jesus' ministry was teaching and preaching, He's on the circuit. He's on tour preaching. (laughs) Jesus on tour. Uh, They estimate there was over 200 synagogues in this region during this time. And he's just bouncing around going to each of them, uh, or many of them at least, and speaking there in their synagogues. In fact, look at the summary statement at the end of Luke chapter 4 in verse 42. It says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. If I wanted to eat up the rest of our time this morning, we could look at all the texts in the gospels that say, and Jesus was preaching, and Jesus was preaching, and Jesus was preaching. And this is just a summary statement that highlights that. He was called to preach. I heard... Uh, many in studying for this who made the comments, so I'll duplicate it as well. God had one son and he made him a preacher, right? (laughs) People love to say that. Preachers love to say that. So, well, that's true. He was a preacher. Now, here's what's significant about that. The nature of Jesus' mission, as we're gonna see, would determine what his method would be. Because Jesus came to proclaim, or he came to bring forgiveness and put people in a right relationship with God, then it would stand to reason that his method would be proclamation, to tell them this news by which they could respond to. And so it is for us, he sets the, the foundation for what the mission of his people will be in this age, in this time. And it is the mission of proclamation. That is to be the focus of Luther, Martin Luther, uh, I think I said this last week in Sunday school, he called the church the mouth house. The mouth house, I already called the mouth house because it's where speech goes forth. That's the priority of the church is speaking forth the word of God. Preaching is to be uh, highlighted. In fact, many, the architecture of many churches during the Reformation became, had the pulpit central. So to highlight for people even visually that this is the, the main focus, is the word of God being proclaimed. You get away from preaching, you get away from the mission that, that God has for the church. The power of Jesus' ministry, the priority of Jesus' ministry, and then finally the popularity of Jesus' ministry. It says a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and then it says that he was being glorified by all. Uh, Jesus' fame is spreading rapidly. In fact, Luke uses a word in Greek called which is "fame," which we we get our word "fame" from, and he he just he's just growing so popular. In Mark chapter one verse twenty-eight, it says in. At once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And it's in this context then that Jesus returns home, the place where he had grown up, but he has been ministering for over a year now, elsewhere, and now he comes home, and and he, he would have come home likely to a packed synagogue that Sabbath. As they had heard news about him, they had heard what he was doing elsewhere, and his message, it had no doubt come back to them, and now he's come home. Guest preacher, this Sabbath, Jesus. It's like, whoa, (laughs) would you come to that service? Yeah, you would. (laughs) This is the hometown boy, he's come home. And so now we see not just the review, the recap rather, but the reading, look at the reading. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Nazareth was a small town, maybe 400 people at this time, some suggest. Very small. It was not a popular city. The Old Testament doesn't even mention Nazareth, as we've pointed out. In fact, it said uh, when, early in Jesus' ministry in John 1, when, when they find out where Jesus is from, one of the disciples says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's a great disdain for this town, but Jesus, this is where he's grown up. These are his people, and he's come back to them. And Jesus' pattern was to attend weekly worship with God's people. It was his custom, it says, to gather on the Sabbath, and he's been teaching, that's what he's been doing. We don't know exactly when synagogues began. Uh, Many think that it was after the Babylonian captivity uh, and the temple was destroyed, and so they needed a a way to meet together, and so the the form of the Sabbath, or sorry, the, the synagogues became established. Um, that's possible. Um, some think it was later. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the point is that by Jesus' day, when he was born, synagogues were well-established places of worship for the people of God, for Jews. And so they would gather on Saturday, on the Sabbath, and, uh, and gather. So isn't it instructive, though? And here's Jesus, who, who prioritized the weekly gathering with God's people. I think that's significant, just by his example. Uh, if anyone was more busy and weary in work through the week, it was Jesus. I mean, we're gonna see he's just, he's gotta go to a desolate place. He's so exhausted from the ministry he's doing, and yet he's constantly coming back, coming back to gather with God's people, and of course to preach as well. Now, in order to appreciate the scene, it would be helpful for you to know a little about the synagogue service. And uh, we have a general idea from history of what took place in a normal uh, liturgy of a synagogue service on a Sabbath. Uh, there was likely a reading of a psalm in the beginning, uh, the reciting of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, and then the, what's called the 18 benedictions, kind of like a confession of some sort. And then the ironic blessing was read from uh, Numbers 6. Then there was a prayer, and then two readings, one from the Torah, the first five books, and then one from the prophets. Then some kind of sermon, And if there was a priest present, they would have a benediction uh, to to follow the service. Now, you're just thinking, that sounds a lot like what we do, right? There's a lot of similarities. You know, we started with a psalm. Uh, We sometimes will have, we'll we'll, like say the Apostles Creed or something like that. Not this Sunday, but uh, we have uh, prayers, um, scripture reading, sermon, benediction, and, and we sing as well. So... Here at this point, you can see now at what point in the service Jesus is coming into the scene as he's there. It is at this latter part of the service when the prophets are read because he's handed Isaiah, Isaiah is in, the prophets, okay? So that's what's happening. He's the guest speaker for the Sabbath. He stands up to read from the prophets. And now, this wasn't random. They had likely, uh, as Jesus comes in, and they offer him the opportunity to speak. Paul, later in Acts 13, he's a well-respected rabbi, and he's become a Christian at this point, but he goes to a Sabbath in Pisidian Antioch, and they ask him after one of the readings, if you'd like to say any comments about the text, go ahead, and they give him an opportunity. Um, so, uh, th- this wasn't uncommon, and so they give Jesus the opportunity, and they hand him the Isaiah scroll. Now, don't think of like a book. Uh, this is known as a codex, right? A book where it's bound together like this, and um, think more like a scroll where it's unrolled, and so that's what they would have had at this point. So they hand him the, the Isaiah scroll that they had, likely a big scroll. Isaiah's a big book, And Jesus is going to unroll it. Now, remember, there's no chapter divisions or verse divisions at this time. It's just straight up text. And it's on a scroll. But Jesus knew the text so well, he knew the feel of the scroll that he could roll it out just to where, you know, you know in your Bibles, if I were to say to you like, okay, go to Genesis, you'd be like, all right, it's definitely in the beginning, so it's like, you know, there. It's like, oh, Genesis 25, all right, I was close, you know, almost in the beginning, all right. So you know that. It's like, you imagine, they hand Jesus the scroll of Isaiah, he's so familiar with it, he knows where to roll. There's no chapters or verses. He goes exactly to the place that he wants. Many think it's unlikely at this point, though later they would have, some hundred years later, uh, had a more of a, a scheduled reading plan. At this point, probably not so. And so Jesus is given the Isaiah scroll, and he chooses the text that he wants to read. And so, yeah, I think you know this is the way I, my mind thinks. They didn't have orders of service like we do, uh, and so you know what the text is ahead of time. Maybe his disciples that are going to Nazareth, saying, Jesus, what are you going to teach on? Him? What are you gonna read? You know, what's your text? You know, what's your passage when we get there? And I don't know if you told him or not, but they found out at this point. And he opens to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. This is towards the end section of Isaiah. He also will allude to Isaiah 58:6 as well. And so he goes to this text, he goes directly to it. This is where he wants to preach from, and then he reads. Look at verse 18. And 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What a perfect passage to read! This passage clearly identifies the Messiah and defines His mission. What is he going to do? And notice how the text begins. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Who, who's the me here? Well, it's Messiah in the context. And the Spirit would be upon the Messiah. We've, we've actually already seen this as we've seen the, looked at how the Spirit comes upon him in his baptism in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 48. Uh, these texts speak about the, Messiah, the Holy Spirit coming upon the Messiah and empowering his ministry. And the word anointed is the word where we get Messiah from. And so Jesus identifying himself as the servant, the Messiah, Israel's servant. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth Justice. But what is it the Messiah is to come to do? So, I mean, what he's doing is saying, this is me. I'm the Messiah. As he's going to say, it's fulfilled. Well, then he defines by this passage what the Messiah comes to do. And there's five features in the text about the mission of the Messiah. Let's look at them. First, to proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim good news to the poor. The Messiah has good news to tell the poor. But who are the poor? Well, the word describes those who have nothing at all. There's actually a few different words for for poor, poverty. Here is the word for being utterly destitute. You don't even have two pennies to rub together. The word describes those who have nothing at all. Uh, Later, Jesus will use it in Luke chapter 16, verse 20, of Lazarus, as he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus was so poor he was begging outside of the, the home of the rich man. And he just had nothing. Dogs were licking his wounds. He's that poor. At the point that Isaiah has and Jesus has here is to refer to those who are spiritually destitute. Speaks to those who are spiritually and morally bankrupt. In other words, they've come to the point where they say, God, I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to commend myself before you. Later in another sermon, Jesus will say, in a very famous sermon, He'll say, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He's not talking about material poverty there. He's talking about spiritual poverty. He's saying, those who recognize they have nothing to give to God, it is those who are blessed, because it is those whom God saves. He didn't come for the the healthy, he came for the sick. He didn't come for the rich, he came for the poor, spiritually. Only those who realize they have nothing can be saved. In fact, Jesus rebuked the church in Laodicea in Revelation 13, 17, saying, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. As he speaks to their spiritual condition, they're saying, oh, we're fine, we're good. Jesus is saying, no, you're not. You are destitute, and you need to acknowledge that. And so Jesus has good news for those who have nothing to offer God, this is the mission of the Messiah, to come to those who cannot commend themselves to God, but to put them right before God. Second, he has been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. Here's why Jesus was sent, to proclaim. He was sent to preach and provide that which he offered in his preaching. It was liberty to the captives. And the captives had to do with exile in the Old Testament. And why did Israel go into exile? because of their sin, because they broke God's law. It was their punishment, and captivity speaks to being a prisoner, and liberty is actually a word that's translated often in Luke as forgiveness. The idea he's making here is related to spiritual captivity and forgiveness. He's come to release people who are slaves, who are in bondage, who are prisoners of their own sin. Bible speaks about ways, different ways that sinners are captive. Captive to Satan is one way that it speaks. In 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, speaks this way. It says, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Captured by Satan, captive to Satan. Or we are captive to the fear of death. Captive to the fear of death that Satan wields over us. In Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery of the fear of death. And, And of course, captive to sin, Captive to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 tells us, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And Jesus said in John eight thirty four, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. And so this is the freedom, the forgiveness Jesus comes to offer and procure for those who will believe. Jesus the Messiah came to forgive the debt of sinners and thus free them from their enslavement to sin. Isaiah 42, 7 will speak about how he came to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah himself uses terminology like that to speak of those in in spiritual bondage in that way. In other words, he's come to redeem and buy back captives. How does he do this? How does Jesus bring back those who are spiritually in captivity? Well, he provides forgiveness for their sins so that they might be released. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so Jesus has come. His mission is to proclaim liberty and release to the captives, forgiveness for the captives. Also, he's come for the recovering of sight to the blind, to proclaim that there is recovery of sight for the blind. Yes, Jesus would heal people of their physical blindness, but even in those circumstances, there were times when those who were physically healed of their blindness also came to be healed of their spiritual blindness and follow Jesus. And that seems to be the focus here as well, as Jesus is giving spiritual sight to those who are in the darkness. Isaiah many times speaks about this darkness that uh, blinds people, though they have eyes to see. Though they have eyes, they, they cannot see. They have physical eyes, they, they cannot see. It, it, Isaiah twenty nine, verse eighteen. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Chapter thirty five, verse five. Isaiah says, "Behold, your God." Or, "Excuse me." Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Chapter forty two, verse seven. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and so he comes to open these blind eyes—spiritual blindness. Now, spiritual blindness is really what defines and describes the nature of spiritual death. Right? The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. What does that mean? What is the nature of that? Well, part of that is mean—it means that we're, we're blind. We don't see. We we cannot see the glory, the objective glory of who God is and the gospel. And rather, we put value on things other uh, and more highly than upon God. And so it's a blindness that makes us value things differently. And this is why John 3, verse 19, it says this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed." This is why Jesus came. This is his mission, to open blind eyes. Luke chapter one, verse 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will not walk in darkness. I have the light of life. Acts chapter twenty. 6, Acts chapter 26, Paul's ministry. verse 18, his ministry is described as, he was being sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what Paul's ministry was. This is what he was given to do. And of course, Paul then will later say in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said that light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus came to do, to open blind eyes, to give spiritual sight, to bring clarity to the truth and to reality. This is the work of the Messiah, to give new hearts so that they can see and hear. He also came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is speaking to those who felt the burden of sin and and suffering, the difficult circumstances of life as a result of sin in this world. Isaiah speaks about how he has come to bind up the brokenhearted, Here's what Messiah's come to do. Here's his mission, to bind up the brokenhearted. Here's why he came. Dear Christian, are you brokenhearted? This is the very essence of Messiah's ministry to you, to bind up the brokenhearted. He says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight and to, and to 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's also come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, have you noticed all the preaching language up to this point? It's just proclaim, proclaim. Teach. Messiah has come to preach. Here's another feature of this mission of preaching: preaching the year of the Lord's favor. Year probably here refers to this idea of a season or an age of the Lord's favor. God's favor or acceptance is being announced. And by Jesus quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah is alluding no doubt to Leviticus 25 and the year of Jubilee, this time every 50 years when Israel was supposed to release any slaves and forgive any debts that were there. Everything kind of reverted back to the original inheritance rights. And so it was a great picture of forgiveness and spiritual liberation. Now I wonder if you remember in Matthew 18, the parable that Jesus told about forgiveness uh, towards the end. I I don't want to read all of that. I just want you to see the first part of it as he sets it up. In, In Matthew 18, verses 23 to 27, it says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is an unpayable debt. It's this incredibly high debt. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt, an unpayable debt forgiven. And this is such a great picture, and Jesus will go on to make a point out of this, but the point I wanna see is just simply that what a great picture of what God does for us, because that's what Jesus makes the point, is here's how God has forgiven you, an unpayable debt before him. I don't know if you've ever listened to uh, Dave Ramsey uh, and uh, his podcast, Uh, he's a financial guy, and he has a, a segment on his show, on his podcast, where it's called The Debt-Free Scream. And so people come in and they can come into the studio and they, he'll ask them, you know, they paid off uh, debt, and he'll say, you know, oh, okay, it's time for our Debt-Free Scream, and he'll interview the you and know, they got their kids there and everything, and he says, oh, okay, what's your names? And then and they'll say, well, how much debt did you have? And uh, how much were you making? And how long did it take you to pay off your debt? And they do all the questions. And then, after he's done all the questions, he'll say, all right, are you ready for your debt-free scream? And they'll be like, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so they'll count down, one, two, three, and they'll say, we're debt-free! <laughs> and they yell it out, and, and then it's like, oh, it's like, you know, applause. And, uh, it, you know, it's exciting, motivating. Um, but, uh, you know, it just made me think, how incredible. I mean, th- that's people paying off for themselves, their own debts, How much more incredible that we cannot pay off our debt. It's unpayable. It would be like you having the U.S. national debt as your personal debt, and you have to work it off with your current salary. I mean, that's like the situation. No way, it's not happening. And here comes God who says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, forgiveness of debts, the debt of your sin. Doesn't that make you want to stand up and scream, I'm free, I'm free. Don't you want to do a debt-free scream (laughs) of your sin? This is what Jesus came to proclaim. Debt forgiveness, not that kind, but debt forgiveness of your sin. And so Isaiah 61, one to the first part of verse two, describes the mission of the Messiah. And after he reads, Luke hits slow motion. And the drama is intensified as he highlights each movement of Jesus. Look at verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's like Luke slows it down and it's like every mo- movement is just art- articulated and highlighted and just, you could hear a pin drop. Everyone's going, what's he gonna say? Now, you think, what is the standing sitting? Well, they would stand up for the reading of the scripture and then they would sit down and even likely the rabbi would sit down as well as he would teach. And so he's not sitting down back in uh, the congregation, but sitting down to teach, give his instruction. And that's what he does. He gives his exposition. Now it's likely Jesus preached a longer message and Luke is simply summarizing for us because verse 21 says he began to say. So here's like a snippet. But his introduction is perfect. What a great introduction. He closes the scroll, rolls it up, gives it to the attendant, sits down, and he says... Verse twenty one today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Chilling. I mean, this is a sizzling Sabbath. Uh, This is incredible. He fulfills Isaiah sixty one. How does he fulfill it? Well, number one, he is the Messiah described. But not only that. What is it the Messiah's mission is to proclaim these things? What is it that Jesus has just done? He's proclaimed these things by reading the text about him, proclaiming the things. And so notice how it says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. As they hear the preached word, the prophecy is fulfilled because the Messiah preaches these things. He proclaims these things, and he also provides for these things. And so now they've heard the Messiah proclaim these things, and Jesus is that Messiah, so it's fulfilled. What the scripture said the Messiah would proclaim, he has done. And so in their very hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled How incredible. Now, what's interesting, it's a little side note. Jesus, remember there's no first references, chapter references. Jesus stops in an interesting place in his reading. It's a short reading, yes. But in Isaiah, verse two ends, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor, the Lord's favor, that's where Jesus stops, but the next phrase is "and the day of vengeance of our God." He doesn't read that part. Why would that be? Well, in the Old Testament, the work of the Messiah is often smushed together, and it's not differentiated what happens in his first coming and what happens in his second coming. And so, Jesus stops at this point to say, "Here's what's fulfilled right now. The Messiah's here. He's been identified, and he's proclaiming these things to you." What is not yet being fulfilled? The day of the Lord the day of God's vengeance. That is for later. That is when Jesus returns to bring judgment. And so that is not yet. So he doesn't say that part is fulfilled. He's strategic in stopping there. He's rightly identified as the one who will bring about all these things, but all of these things don't yet come to pass but what is it that he's come to do in his first coming? Well, he's come to proclaim these things and provide for these things. He's come to give good news to the poor in spirit. He's come to give release to those who are slaves to their sin. He's come to give spiritual sight to those who are blind. He's come to give liberty to those who are oppressed by Satan, sin, and society and to proclaim God's favor. Remember that Jesus does not just proclaim these things, but he actually procures what he proclaims as he goes to the cross. And now we... As his disciples continue to proclaim these very things in this age, the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus can bring you freedom. He can give light. He can give you life, comfort, favor. And do you know these things this morning? Are you held captive by fears, lusts, addictions, anger, whatever else may be labeled? Disorders. Jesus has come to deliver, to give hope in these areas. Let me tell you the story of Heath Lambert. He's currently the pastor of First Baptist Jacksonville, Florida. And he's written a lot of great books. He's a great biblical counselor. Um, And at the end of one of his books, entitled Finally Free, he includes a personal testimony of how God worked in his life to free him from his slavery to sin. I think this would be help to you and even just this is not maybe your struggle but put in your struggle here and how God can deliver. Listen to what he says. Quote, I was introduced to pornography back in the day when people still watched VHS tapes. I was just an 8-year-old boy whose creepy uncle was completely enslaved to porn. He had video cassettes everywhere. One day he handed a tape to me and my friends. We watched it. To this day, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite so terrible and so wonderful. It was terrible because my guilty eight-year-old conscience screamed out that it was wrong. And it was wonderful in a perverse way because watching people commit these new and unimagined acts of immorality was exhilarating. The pornography I watched that afternoon opened up an intense struggle for me that lasted more than a decade. By God's grace, I wasn't able to see very much pornography. There was no internet when I was a kid. The only way to see pornography was to buy a magazine in the store if, if you were old enough or to be friends with someone who owned something. I was too young to buy it, and I wasn't around my perverted uncle very much. But the desire had been awakened. I wanted to see porn and would devour every rare glimpse I could catch. There was never a single occasion that I denied myself a peek at pornography when I had the opportunity. When I was 14 years old, I repented of my sins for the very first time and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. I moved from knowing pornography was wrong to really hating it. But I still looked at it whenever I could because I simply didn't know what to do to be different. Over time, I began to struggle against my temptations, but I found myself consistently on the losing side of the battle. I just didn't know what to do. I would look at pornography whenever I could and then spend days and weeks feeling guilty. By the time I was in college, something had to give. My desires to see pornography whenever I could could, were in a raging conflict with my increasing desire to be in a close relationship with Jesus. Over time, I began to do many of the things described in this book. I began to draw near to Jesus in repentant prayer, asking for his forgiving and changing grace. I took radical measures to eliminate any potential opportunity I had to view pornography. I sought wise accountability, and I began to serve others. As I began taking these steps, I witnessed a miracle in my life. I began to change. I noticed a definite decrease in my desire for porn and an increasing desire for Jesus. The change wasn't instantaneous. It rarely is. But it was real change. First sign of this change was when I began to talk honestly with the Lord about my sin and to seek his grace for forgiveness and change. A second indication appeared as I began to talk honestly with brothers in Christ about my struggle. After that, I continued to see change as I began to choose purity over pornography in moments of temptation. My record was imperfect, but no longer was, that defi- was it defined by constant habitual failure. The major milestone of victory over this temptation occurred when I was 22. I had graduated from college and was driving the thousand miles between Southern Seminary in Kentucky, where I'd begun my seminary education, and Gordon College in Massachusetts, where my future wife, Lauren, was finishing up her college degree. I was driving in the middle of the night when I passed the largest pornographic video store on planet Earth. As the store came into view, I had two opposing thoughts. The first was that in this moment, I had the best opportunity to look at pornography that anyone could ever want. It was the middle of the night. It was in the middle of nowhere and nobody I knew was around. I could stop and look at pornography for hours and there would be no consequences. This was the sort of opportunity I would have dreamed of having just a few short years ago. But even though I considered this opportunity, there was a second, more powerful thought. I didn't wanna stop. I really didn't want to see pornography. I had no interest in what they were selling in that store. Over the years of fighting, prayer and accountability, God had been faithful and had truly changed my desires. Though I could have looked at all the porn I wanted to, I didn't desire it any longer. I was free. Being free does not mean being perfect. Over the years since that day, I've still needed to walk closely with the Lord and gaze the fight early, repent from an impure heart, and be accountable to other men. I am not yet what I will be, but by God's grace, I am not what I was. I write these words to you today as a man who does not look at pornography and does not desire to. The reason is not that I'm so wonderful, but that I have experienced the same grace of Christ I'm commending in this book. That's what the Messiah has come to do. That is his mission, to free slavery to sin, free people from their bondage to sin and give them hope that that is possible. If the Bible condemns a sin, it gives hope that there is change possible for that sin. It frees people so that they might enjoy him. Jesus didn't come for rich people, but poor in spirit. He didn't come for free people, but people in prison. Jesus didn't come for people who see, but people who are blind. Jesus didn't come for people whose lives are all together, but for people whose lives are in a mess and broken. He came for broken people. This is the good news he came to proclaim. This is the mission of the Messiah. And this is why Luke begins here, so that we would see why he came and what he can do. Well, we then look at this rebuke that he gives to the people there, verses 22 to 27. At first, people are impressed, verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? They were impressed with his skill that he had in communicating, they thought he was a good speaker. Yet the others stumble over the familiarity of Jesus that they have. Is this Joseph's son? in Matthew 13:55, "Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? It's like they're saying, "I mean, he built my dad's desk. He fixed my brother's chair. You know <laughs> This is the Messiah? We know this kid. He knows their' thinking, though. And after all, they' are his people. And so he anticipates their objections. Look at verse 23. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus, you've gained a popularity. You've been doing these things elsewhere. Why don't you prove it? This is like them saying, Put your money where your mouth is, Jesus. You did all these miracles elsewhere. Why don't you do some here? I mean, we're your people. This is your hometown. Then we will believe. They want signs. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs. But the issue is not a matter of signs, but of unbelief. The agnostic Bertrand Russell said once that if he was wrong, and God did exist, and he did meet God, he would say this, quote, Not enough evidence, Lord. Not enough evidence. Scary. Later, John wrote in John 12 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And Mark writes of this account in Mark 6, 5 and 6, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among them in the village's teaching. It says they marveled at his preaching ability. He marveled at their unbelief. They were like, this guy can speak. I mean, this is like they were saying amens to him as he's speaking and, uh, and saying, wow, sir, pastor, great sermon. And, and, and they hate him, though. They hate the message. They love his ability to communicate, but they don't like what he's saying. And Jesus seeks to expose their unbelieving hearts. He rebukes them. And first he, sh- he starts with a, his main point. Verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he gives two examples of proof of this. One from the ministry of Elijah and one from the ministry of Elisha in the days of the kings. And So you have to think, what characterized Israel during these days, during these particular ministries of Elijah and Elisha? Well, Ahab, in the case of Elijah, was one of the most wicked kings in Israel, and Israel is idolatrous, and they're in unbelief, and they're experiencing all these things uh, like famine and drought because that's what God said in Deuteronomy would happen if they were unfaithful to God. It was the unique relationship they had. And so they're characterized by unbelief during this time. And here's what Jesus says in verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. I mean, this is, Touching the third rail. I mean, he is, he is putting his finger on a live nerve. He's saying, you know what? Remember that time there was this famine in Israel during the days of Elijah? You know, weren't there a lot of widows in Israel? But Elijah went to none of them. Why? Because they're unbelieving. Because they hated God. And they wouldn't submit to him. They were idolaters. So what did God do? He sent him to a pagan Gentile woman. And of course you read that story and this woman is, her and her son are about to die and Elijah shows up and he says, hey, can I have some food? And she's like, we're about to die. And he's like, make me some food. And she, her, her flower continues to, to come and her, her, the, the, the oil and there's just, it's just a miracle that he provides for her. And then her son dies and he heals the son, raises the son. And throughout the, the text, there's an emphasis on her faith and her trust. So what, what Jesus is doing is saying, You're like Israel during this time. You're in unbelief. So I'm not gonna do a sign for you just like Elijah wouldn't do a sign for his people. And then he goes further and he says, oh yeah, there's another example. Verse 27. This one might be worse. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. He says, hey, lots of leprosy. Elisha could have healed them. He didn't do it for the Jews. He didn't do it for Israel. Why? Why? because they're unbelievers. They're unbelieving on the large part of them. What did he do, though? Naaman is a Syrian. He's attacking Israel. He's like a terrorist to Israel. And he's, God sends his prophet. Well, what happens is, this guy it gets worse, because this guy, Naaman, kidnapped a Jewish girl and made her his slave. And she says, you have leprosy? There's a man of God among my people who could heal you. You should go to him, and he will heal you. And so Naaman's like, okay. Uh, he goes to Elisha, and I'm just like, all right, dip in the Jordan seven times. And Elisha's like, that's dumb. Or, I mean, uh, Naaman's like, that's dumb. I'm not doing that. So he leaves. But his servants are like, dude, you've got leprosy. What, what hope do you have? So he's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. I, and he believes. And he gets in the water, and he's cleansed. God cleanses this guy. And then, of course, there's the Gehazi's greed that follows that. But that's besides the point. The point is, he's this Gentile unbeliever, and Elisha doesn't go to anyone in Israel. He goes to this Gentile, pagan. I mean, this would have worked them up. What is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to expose their sin. He's rebuking them. He's exposing their sin through the scriptures and saying, you are unbelieving for you to demand a sign right now. Tom Schreiner says, Jesus' point is clear. Those who have the greatest privileges often do not respond to the message of salvation. And those who think and those we think will never respond may in fact repent and believe. They wanted to define the terms in which Jesus must act for them, and they were still sovereign ruler and not God. Now, people often want God to affirm them in their sin and do for them what they desire most. But God wants sinners to acknowledge their sin and repent of their wrong desires and trust in him. And despite Jesus' powerful preaching of the scriptures, their hearts were utterly unmoved and unaffected. Listen to J.C. Ryle, apply this text. He says, conviction alert. I'm just get warning you. <laughs> Quote, he says, There are thousands of persons in Christian churches in little better state of mind than our Lord's hearers in Nazareth. There are thousands who listen regularly to the preaching of the gospel and admire it while they listen. They do not dispute the truth of what they hear. They even feel a kind of an intellectual pleasure in hearing a good and powerful sermon. But their religion never goes beyond this point. Their sermon hearing does not prevent them living a life of thoughtlessness, worldliness, and sin. He goes on to charge us. Let us see what practical effect is produced on our hearts and lives by the preaching which we profess to like. Does it lead us to true repentance towards God and lively faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ? Does it excite us to weekly efforts to cease from sin, to resist the devil? These are the fruits which sermons ought to produce. They're really doing us good. Without such fruit, a mere barren admiration is utterly worthless. There is no proof of grace. It will save no soul. And so this is the rebuke that Jesus gives to them. He's loving them, though, to show them how desperate their situation is, their unbelief. Finally, we see the rejection. Rejection. This is surprising. As you start the story, it sounds so good. Homecoming. And it ends with this riot. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff." what a response. Jesus revealed their true condition to them and they got mad at him. You're an unbeliever. You don't know God. You hate God. You need to repent. And they got so angry. They didn't have a logical response back to him. When logic fails, Just use violence. And they went from being impressed at his speech to being excited to murder him. James James 4, 1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this? That your desires are at work within you. And so Jesus has called them out. Romans 8, 7 says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. John 7, 7, Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Do you want to be hated by the world tell it that its works are evil say you hate god you love yourself you love your sin and you need to repent you need to trust god you need to trust christ god has made provision for sinners just like you this is the good news but you have to expose the unbelief first so that they can believe, and that's the loving thing, and yet they hate him. They treat him like a false prophet. You were supposed to kill and stone a false prophet, and so they drive him out, and they seek to push him off this cliff, and yet somehow he escapes. This is like a miracle in itself. Like, what what is happening here? How how is this possible? Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus was on a divine timetable. John will many times say his hour had not yet come. What's going on here? I don't know. Somehow he makes it, I mean, they're just mobbing him and he just walks through. It's like the Red Sea parts and he leaves. And what a judgment upon them to leave this city. Jesus leaves your city like this. It is a judgment in itself. One writer said, Jesus is not rejected in Sodom or Gomorrah, but in Nazareth. Being familiar with Jesus can prove dreadfully dangerous. Dangerous. So here's Jesus homecoming. See the recap of his ministry, the reading of Scripture and its fulfillment, his rebuke of their unbelief, and then the rejection. But Jesus continues on preaching, ministering. Some believe, some will reject, but the gospel goes forth. Aren't you glad you're a Christian? Aren't you glad that God has worked in your life to bring deliverance? And wherever you are and your struggle with sin, there is hope. God is at work in you, dear Christian. He is changing you. He is at work in you. He's gonna expose sin in your life, but he's gonna apply truth and the balm of the gospel to change your beliefs, change your desires, change your commitments, and bring you from one degree of glory to another. As you do what we've just done this morning, look at the Lord Jesus Christ so that you say, I want him. He's so captivating. He's so compelling. I want him more than anything. I love this man. I love this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that greater affection that will expel out of you every lesser affection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope, both in life and in death. He is the one we need most of all. We thank you for the deliverance that he brings, freeing us from our slavery to sin, from our bondage to sin, and continuing to do that work through your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would be at work among us. If there's those here who have yet to trust in Christ and lean upon him, bring them this morning to hear, have ears to hear, eyes to see, open those blind eyes. And Lord, for us, give us hope and encouragement that you are still at work in us to conform us to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.